from AATH, the Association for Applied and Therapeutic Humor. This is LaughBox, the podcast for laughter and humor professionals. Here's your host, Chip Lutz. Hello, friends, and welcome to Leader. I'm in the Leadership Happy Hour. That's my other podcast. Welcome to. Okay, let's get. <laughs> it's middle of the day, but it's never too early to drink. Welcome to LaughBox, the official podcast of the Association for Applied and Therapeutic Humor. And today is um, another great day for me because, and what's cool about being able to do this podcast is I get to talk to really cool people that are out there doing real work with humor and laughter. And today I get to talk with somebody that was one of the first people I met in the association, um, uh, Dr. Steve Soltanoff, and somebody whose session impacted me in such a way a decade ago that I still refer to my notes from his session. Just a really smart guy. And also that as my time as conference chair, he was always my the person I would watch during sessions to see like, hmm, is Steve into this? If he's into this, I know it's a good session. That I knew it was inherently good for me, but he's a lot smarter than I am. So I would watch him as like, hmm, how is he, how is he reacting? And it was like, all right, we can have this person back. Or if he left the session, no, we don't want to have this person back. So welcome Steve to LaughBox. Thanks, Chip. It's great to be here. It's great to have you here. So I know you pretty well, and I know the work that you do, but if you could share for our listeners a little bit about yourself, where do you hail from, and so forth? Okay, well, I'm based in Southern California, and my professional degree is in psychology. So I started out as a fairly traditional psychologist, and along the way, I discovered humor which for me was somewhat ironic because I was not the guy that anybody ever wrote my yearbook, gee, Steve, you're a funny guy. Because <laughs> finally, I'm not a funny guy. So I would encourage all of you out there to realize you don't have to be a funny guy to get involved in and practice therapeutic humor, using humor with others to help them. So my traditional, traditionally I'm trained as a psychologist. And then I discovered AATH about 25, 30 years ago and realized I sort of had found my people. And uh, it's, it's a long story of how I fell into the therapeutic humor world, so I won't go into that, that whole story. But I did discover that psychologists didn't know much about humor. And they might use humor, but they didn't know its benefits or how to actually employ it. And then you can broaden that out to the general public as most people don't know how to, you know, kind of consciously and purposely use humor to help someone else. We all um, engage in humor at some level or, or another. So that's a little bit about, you know, kind of where I'm coming from. How did you, when you said you discovered humor, what, what do you mean you just, you just, you discovered it? Because I like the fact that you said that you're not a funny guy. Because I think you're a funny guy, but it's really, you're really a low-key funny guy. But, and you I like the way you find humor in, in things and share different things, you know, some of your emails that you'll shoot out, you know, find things that you find funny. But how did you find the humor? Well, I think part of it is I'm really at heart um, kind of a scientist. And as a scientist, my humor is more cerebral, so most people didn't experience that, and that's the way I'm perceived today. But the way I, I found my, my passion for humor is I went to the largest international psychology conference in the world, and it's commonly called Woodstock of Psychotherapy, and that was way back in 1980. Oh my 1980s. God, that sounds horrible. <laughs> oh, there was no rain and mud, but it, it was conference. And I went to a session on applying humor and psychotherapy, and there were 500 people in the room in a big 
all room. And there were four presenters, and these were the masters of psychology, the people who had written my textbooks, people you know I knew by name, uh, not by in person, but by name, absolutely. And when they talked about the use of humor, not one of them understood application. It was more anecdotal. They said, well, I use humor in this way, and another person used humor in another way. But they didn't have any substance. And that really caught my eye. And then within a year, I went to another conference, which was in San Francisco, called the Laughter and Play Conference. And there they had a session on integrating humor into psychotherapy. And I went to that session. And those people really understood humor, but didn't understand psychotherapy. So the coming of those two things together really piqued my interest. I thought, gee, I'm a psychologist, and humor could have a great impact. Then I was in a, at a university one day walking down a hall, and there I see a flyer. And this, is, this is in the days of flyers in the late 1980s. And it said the association, no, actually it was the American Association for Therapeutic Humors having its annual conference in a beautiful November in Chicago. And I said, well, I <laughs> so I, I packed up and I went to the conference and um, that's my history with AATH that I found my people. So those things all coming together with one final thing that happened, which was I was learning a certain style or model of psychotherapy. And that is that as a therapist, I want to help people change how they feel, how they think, what they do, and even to some point their physiology, like with medication, even though I'm, I don't prescribe. Mm -hmm. And I realized at, through the, the conferences that I'd been to, through AATH, that humor um, would affect all four of those areas. I thought, gee, humor changes how we feel. As a therapist, I want to help people change how they feel. Uh, as a ther uh, humor changes how we think. And as a therapist, I want to help people change how they think. So all of a sudden, those things all coming together made me look at humor and then encouraged me to try and become a funnier guy. I always looked at the humor around me, but now I began to practice in ways I never thought I would. So, for example, over years, I've, I've decided to use props, which I was never a prop person. That always seemed silly to me. Mm -hmm. But whenever I go out, I always have at least a few humor props on me. And I don't use them every day. In fact, I use them on rare occasions. But to give a quick example, I always carry an Elvis driver's license. So that when I'm asked for a driver's license, I will present my Elvis driver's license. Awesome. And I have to tell you, since 9-11, I have only been able to get through security twice with my Elvis driver's license. <laughs> Just twice. <laughs> that but in fact that's actually true that is so funny i it, it, for those of you that work for tsa if you're listening to that be on the lookout for <laughs> right be on the lookout for elvis right <laughs> so it, it, when you're looking at you know humor change in the way people feel all those those four things you're talking about how does that work how does how does humor play into those different things okay well what happens for me is i use humor intentionally and purposefully either within psychotherapy or in my day-to-day -day life and I use it to to enjoy it myself but also for the benefit of the other per person mm -hmm. so I'm intentionally and purposefully thinking about it so uh, I uh, using the Elvis driver's license I might pull it out getting into a hotel because I'm maybe the third or first 
third or fourth person in line to get up to registration. I can see that the clerk has been hassled by people, and I'll use the, the license as a way of purposefully having that person have a moment of joy. And it's very rare that somebody doesn't enjoy me giving them the Elvis license. In fact, often they'll pull other staff around and say, oh, look, look who I'm checking in. I've got Elvis here. Elvis and, is in the well, building. I, uh, go ahead. I said Elvis is in the building. Yes, Elvis is in the building. And in fact, since you said that, I'll, I'll give you a quick story on that one. I had my Elvis driver's license. I was in a very, very crowded post office. I went up to the clerk to get a package. I had to show ID. I showed my Elvis ID and he laughed and we chuckled together. And then I showed my legitimate ID and got the package. And now in a crowded post office and I'm walking out, the postal clerk yells, Elvis has just left the building. Nice. Now, nobody got it. Nobody else knew what was going on. But it was that moment that I knew I had touched him in a way that would brighten his day. And people tell me that all the time. They tell me, oh, you've made my day. This is so much fun. Um, you're my favorite, whatever. You're my favorite um, patient or customer or, or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. So, so I, I think about using humor all the time now. Uh, more subtly, in psychotherapy, I'm not at all what you would call a humor therapist or a laugh therapist. If you came to me, I would hope you would not even be aware that I'm using humor as part of the therapy. So I do that totally integrated, which means that every, not every session, but depending on the client, it might be once in a session or two or three times, I will use something humorous to shift that person's, say, emotional state. So the person's really depressed and down. I'll do something purposefully funny. And then I'll say to them, and how do you feel right now? And they say, well, I feel, I feel a little better. You know, that was funny. I said, yeah, isn't that interesting that you feel depressed, and yet when you experience humor, you feel a little bit better. And so that person thinks about it. I said, well, wouldn't that be interesting if you experimented, and on the outside world, if you had either humor coming to you, like getting a magazine like a New Yorker or something that has cartoons that you like, or looking in the newspaper and reading the comics. So if you had something like that, maybe – you'd feel a little bit better. And the person would say, yeah, I would, but that would only be for a couple of minutes. You know, my depression would come back and I would say, you know, you're probably right. But for those few minutes, you would feel better. So isn't that interesting that you could potentially feel better at least for a few minutes? And then with that same person on, with ongoing therapy, I would continue to use humor in the session to shift that person's emotional state to have them see how experiencing humor changes how we feel. And I had one client that I saw for probably, well, over 10 years, and it became humor, became a major impact in her life from being severely, severely depressed to still being depressed, but managing it much better with the use of humor. So that's one way that I use humor within the psychotherapeutic process to shift people's feeling. Another way is by shifting thinking. Most of psychology today, uh, this is my bias now, but I, I believe it to be true, really looks at our emotions and our behaviors are pretty much governed by our thinking process. It's what we think that generates how we feel. We know that events like um, getting divorced doesn't cause someone to be depressed. What get, causes them to be depressed is the way they think about be, getting divorced. Some people getting divorced are elated. Mm -hmm. So what's the difference 
a thinking process. So in the, with humor, I help people shift how they think. And there, there are a number of, of types of simple humor that do that. Peanuts cartoons, for example, are wonderful at having you shift how you think. Uh, it gives you a perspective, and we know that, that a broader perspective is healthier in terms of emotional state. So that's another kind of a, a way that I, I use humor purposefully within the psychotherapeutic practice. Well, you know, with looking at how humor helps people make that, that mental shift, why does that, because I'm just a lay person, how, how does that work, I mean, for, for people? Like, is it, do, their depression, does it go away momentarily then, or does it just, is it still there, but it's, you know, are they occupying the, you know, those emotions occupying the same space at the same time, or it, does one cancel out the other one? Okay, well, yeah, you're asking a lot of good questions. Um, first of all, let me move back to emotion for a minute, and I'll get back to cognition in a, sec a second after that. That we also know that distressing emotions, such as depression, anxiety, anger, guilt, resentment, cannot occupy the same psychological space as humor. So when someone experiences humor, in that moment, they can't feel emotional distress. So that was the first example I was giving where you can shift someone's emotion and you teach them that. And yes, it's momentary. However, if someone practices those momentary events, that eventually it will begin to shift the broader picture. And the same is true for thinking process. We know that, um, again, emotional distress is based on a narrow set of negative thoughts. And I mean, I could go into all the layers of, of the negative thinking, but basically when someone's depressed, they're depressed because there are negative thoughts inside them, like um, nobody likes me, uh, I'm no good, I'm not achieving things. And there's a piece of that is nobody likes me, comma, and I'm no good. Mm -hmm. I'm not achieving things, comma, and I'm no good. So with humor, if you can look at the, the negative thinking, you can shift that out. And so instead of I'm, uh, I'm not achieving things, it could be, yeah, I'm not achieving things. And, and thanks goodness, because if I were achieving things, I'd be overworked. Uh, so that's an, a kind of a shifting of the negative thinking. As I'm talking, I'm trying to think of a, a crisp example for you, and I'm not, uh, nothing's coming up right, right in the moment. But basically, the idea is that when we're distressed, we have this narrow, focused, negative thinking. And humor adds perspective onto, um, onto our world. So if you were thinking it, it would be better if something happened, uh, that things aren't as bad. Like we talk about um, a negative event. Uh, often after a negative event, 9-11 being a classic, that immediately after the event, people can't tolerate humor. So 9-11 would be more of a global event, but in one's personal life, the death of a loved one, a diagnosis of disease, loss of a job, those negative events in that moment um, are often not touched by humor because the humor feels like somebody is, is minimizing the impact. Mm -hmm. However, as someone gets a little bit of distance from the event, uh, then they, the humor begins to add perspective on the event. In other words, a divorce is maybe a peer, uh, experience is awful in the moment, but 
a week from the initial knowing you're getting divorced or six months or a year or two years or five years. You know, five years later, it was really no big deal. And so humor helps reset the, um, that pattern. It, it makes fun, say making fun of the divorce. It, it puts it in perspective of life. Even after 9-11, there was no humor on the late night shows like uh, the David Letterman show and, um, oh gosh, I'm, I'm blanking on the name of the other famous, uh, Jay Leno. Mm -hmm. uh, the Jay Leno, they didn't use, they didn't do their opening monologue. They didn't do a lot of humor for a few weeks. But then they began to make fun of, as the whole country did, fun of um, some of the things that happened in 9-11. I mean, there were, there were cartoons of American airline uh, planes going over the Middle East and, and bombing, um, you know, kind of as a retribution thing. So it, it's the addition of perspective. Mm -hmm. And so humor, humor changes our thinking uh, through perspective. Now, um, does that sort of answer that question? Yeah, Daniel? absolutely. I really, it's interesting to me just thinking about the fact that, you know, you can, you can dwell and I like how you put on there. You can have that narrow focus and just make yourself miserable or you can, you know, shift your, shift the pattern a little bit and have that momentary respite of humor where it, it, that space isn't occupied in your head by the negative emotions that, you know, it's with something a little bit different. So you give you a, you know, so it can help you, I don't know, make a, a quicker mental adjustment. That's, that's pretty powerful stuff. Think about, you know, from a personal perspective, because I mean, we all go through stuff and it's, I, I, I don't know if it's just human nature for us to focus in on the negative and you just keep dwelling on the negative, but you know, having that one thing you can reach out to, it's like, oh, these are things that make me laugh is, you know, a pretty powerful strategy. Right, exactly. And, and I just thought of a great um, example in terms of cartoons. Ziggy cartoons are classic as well as Peanuts, but Ziggy for uh, perspective shifting. And one of the cartoons I used to present in my programs was Ziggy on the psychiatrist's couch. And um, the psychiatrist says to Ziggy, it's not that the whole world is against you. There are billions of people who don't care one way or the other. And in that, it's Ziggy's thinking the world's against me, as we sometimes do. You know, every, nobody likes me. Well, that's not true. It's not that nobody likes you. It's that there are some people that do like you. Or it's not that the whole world is against you. There are billions of people who don't care. So it's not the whole world against you. And that shifts the perspective that exaggerates the distressing emotion. And that's pretty funny, too, because there's just a lot of people who just really don't care. That's um, that's that's hilarious. Right. I'm seeing it in my head. And it's really funny. If you were inside my head right now, you'd be laughing because it's hilarious up there. It is hilarious. Um, uh -huh. A few weeks ago when I saw you, you said something pretty interesting, um, or it resonated with me thinking about, you know, humor as part of the creative thinking process. You, do you see that, you know, can humor help in that regard with people? Yes, I, I absolutely believe that it's a, it can go both ways. So that someone who's creative, I think, has greater potential to experience humor and somebody that works at experiencing humor becomes more and more creative. And part of that is because creative people view the world differently, whether it's their world is art and they view the world differently in art or it's sports, and they view it differently. They, they think outside the box. Um, of course, if you're a cat, it's not good to think outside the box. No. But if you're anything else, 
Did you get that chip? I didn't get that. <laughs> it was funny because I got that because we have four cats, and I was automatically thinking, it's like, man, I hate cats. So you brought <laughs> <laughs> And then if they thought outside the box, it would be mass pandemonium in my house. I got my wife. Oh, I got my wife a uh, a uh, a Valentine's card from her cats and had a picture of the cat on the on the front. It said Happy Valentine's Day, and you open it up and it said You're in my chair. And so I wrote it with my left hand, so the writing would be a little uh, scribbly. And then I wrote it. I put at the bottom P.S. The dog is an a-hole, which I thought was hilarious because <laughs> that's exactly what the cats would write. I was channeling them. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I digress. Um, yeah. <laughs> wait, go, go back to creative thinking. Okay. So the idea is that when we um, most, a, a lot of humor is thinking outside the box, seeing one thing and then thinking of it differently. So um, quick example, when I was a kid, my father, who was a, um, an internationally known scientist and very much in science and, and very creative, although not real humorous, loved to take me down the street in my, in my hometown where you're going down the street and you come to uh, the street ends and you have to turn right or left. And in front of us was the town graveyard. And there was a sign that, that was up in front of the graveyard. And, of course, the sign said, dead end. <laughs> and it's that kind of thinking. It's thinking outside the box. Uh, years ago, I was at an AATH conference, and I think it was when we were in Las Vegas. And I was at one of the hotels and going through a line that was a cafeteria line, and there was a big sign on the cash register that said, We only accept um, U.S. travelers' checks. And I said to the clerk, oh, you only accept U.S. traveler's checks? And she said, yes, that's right. And I said, well, I have cash. I'll just put my food back. <laughs> and, and so it's, it's in that moment I saw what the intent of the statement was as differently than other people. And that's part of the creative process and part of humor. And a lot of our getting humor is we have to be able to, to see the alternative, see something that isn't meant to be seen, um, or it's meant to be seen, but it's not as obvious. So creativity and humor run hand in hand that way. So I was thinking about um, when you said your dad was a scientist and not all that humorous, that uh, what family dinners were were kind of like when you were growing up, that (laughs) with you having a scientific mind and knowing you being, you know, a a big science guy and your dad being science, did, did your was your mom, does she feel like the odd person out? <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm sure she did. My mom was very, the, was the, the warm and loving and compassionate. So that part of me that's more emotional and connected to people comes from my mom. The part of me that is really scientific and precise and questioning um, comes from my dad. And, and as much as he was kind of in his science, he, he was very playful but not humorous per se. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, he used to love, um, and this is something you know that I would think of doing if I had kids. Um, he loved to dance, and um, he and my mom would do the cha-cha a lot. I mean, they would go out dancing, and they were in dance com- uh, little mini tournaments and stuff. So one day, he was driving, um, driving me and some of my buddies uh, uh, to the local swimming pool. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, he started doing the cha-cha with the car. So he did on the accelerator, one, two, cha-cha-cha. And he's hitting the accelerator in the beat to one, two, cha-cha-cha. 
So that's the kind of playful moment that I remember that the kind of the things that he would do. So part of me that's playful, and I am very playful, I'm not that funny, but I'm really playful, is a person who would do something like that, who would, um, and I love, I love to do surprises. And again, people, surprise is one way of experiencing humor. So people out there that want to increase their humor, increase the humor for others around them, might try and do little surprises uh, for people, whether that surprise, um, well, I'm trying to think, well, well, one that I use is another prop. I use a prop called a thumb light, and it's a light, a thumb, like a magician's thumb that, that they wear over their thumb, only it lights up and it lights up red. Mm-hmm. So I will um, be going to, say, a doctor's appointment or a dentist's appointment or an x-ray exam, and I will take my thumb light, and um, if I get blood drawn, they always ask you to press, put pressure on the gauze that they put on after they take the needle out. I'll have my thumb light on, and I'll press on that gauze, and suddenly everything goes red because the light on the thumb light lights up bright red. And therein, the tech experiences surprise. And they're delighted in the surprise. And, and Candid Camera was a wonderful show for adding surprise into people's lives. As long as you do surprises that are, I don't know if I would call them empathic, but basically warm, loving, kind, um, and not surprises that are meant to embarrass or hurt somebody. Right. Like when my brother, when I was a kid, took peanut butter and spread it on my glasses, on the, on the, on the glass part of my glasses. So when I went to go... When I went to go put them on, I there was just peanut butter on my glasses, and it was a surprise, but it really wasn't all that joyful. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> anyway, surprise is joyful. Like as an adult, I would have found that really delightful, but I think as a kid, I can see how that wouldn't be so joyful. Yeah, yeah he thought it was hilarious, um, but there's nothing sure. like the smell of peanut butter on your because it's a smell that's hard to get off. Quite honestly, it just stick. It uh-huh. just it just stays. It just uh-huh. stays. So for, in your work, when you're working with people, what are some of the things that you tell them to do for, you know, positive interventions for themselves to help them, you know, change their thinking and change their emotional patterns? Okay. Well, the first thing I'm going to do is talk about deflecting that a little bit, and I'll come back to it. The deflection is that good therapists don't tell people what to do. Okay. So I would... I would not say to somebody, well, you know, go out and read a joke book or watch a funny video or anything like that. However, what I would say would be, you know, here in this session, what we've discovered is that when you experience humor, you feel a little bit better and it changes how you think. And we know that those things are helping you because changing thinking changes emotion. And so I wonder if there are ways that you could integrate humor into your life on the outside so that you'd be able to do this on a more regular basis rather than me doing it with you. For some clients that I've seen a very long time, what they'll say is, well, actually, I have you on my shoulder, and you're whispering things to me, and that's one of the things. But others will say, you know, um, I really like, and they'll say, I like a certain sitcom. Like, for me, I rarely like a sitcom, but I am a huge Big Bang Theory fan. I love Big Bang Theory. And so that if I were talking to me, I would say, well, again, what do you like? And I'd say, well, you know, I like sitcoms. I like Big Bang. Well, what about if you increase the number of times you watch Big Bang? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Or for someone else, they'd say, well, um, I love jokes. 
So, and how do you like to receive the world? Do you prefer auditory? Do you prefer to read? What, what's the way that you would receive jokes that would be good for you? So, well, I don't really like to read, but I like to hear things. Okay, what ways can you bring jokes or humor or maybe it's comedians into you? And of course they could say, well, my goodness, I could search on YouTube. And I'll bet there are probably one or two comedians out there telling jokes on YouTube or one or two million maybe. Right. So those would be the kinds of things that I would do. I would work with the individual and say, well, what, what tickles your funny bone and how can you bring what tickles your funny bone into your life more? And then one other thing would be, in what ways might you be willing to stretch yourself outside your comfort zone to try something else new that's humorous? So, for example, for me, I, as I mentioned earlier, I was never a prop person. But over the years, I have become a prop person to some extent. I will carry my thumb lights, as I mentioned, and usually that's when I anticipate being in a situation where they might be useful. Mm -hmm. I have Elvis ID. I have my official state of California university ID with me with a clown nose on. Seriously? Uh, that's awesome. Yeah. No, that I can't awesome. believe it. I, you know, it was amazing to me that I could get them to take the picture with the clown nose. They didn't even know that I put it on. Uh, it's a long, long story how that happened. But anyway, because I, because I carried a clown nose with me, I was able to pop it on. Um, I'm a member of Costco, and they take a picture. On my Costco card, I have me with a clown nose. So sometimes people will ask for ID, and instead of Elvis, I'll give them my ID with the clown nose. So I have those props, uh, the thumb lights, the clown nose. Um, so over time, I have found those little props to be fun and playful, and that's a way that I've stretched myself out of my comfort zone because I never thought props were my thing. The other problem with props is, of course, they have to be um, – it have to be easily carried if you want to have them with you with any kind of regularity. Oh, another prop I've used is here in Southern California, as we get on the freeway, we have traffic lights that go red, green, red, green, so that one car can get onto the freeway at a time. Mm -hmm. And when I'm sitting in one of those lines getting onto the freeway, I have in my car um, bubbles. So I roll down the window and I blow bubbles out the window as I'm in the line. And you know, I, I look at the people behind me, um, and I can see people smiling. Sometimes they'll give me a thumbs up. And, and I do that for my own pleasure and to pass the time. But also, in that moment, those people are enjoying the moment, which reminds me of one, another thing, that when I do things like that, particularly with something more dramatic, say, than the bubbles, but with the thumb light or the clown nose, the person that I do it to is going to go to their staff, like at a, a doctor's office, and they're going to tell me, hey, this guy, he was, he was so much fun, or he was crazy, and he had a clown nose, or he had this light. And then they're going to go home, and they're going to tell the story over and over and over again. And each time, they're going to delight in the moment in which they experience the playful surprise, all of the thumb light or the clown nose or whatever. Mm -hmm. So it's maintaining the humor as a ripple effect. Yes, the ripple effect. I like that. Nice. So I, that makes me what think. Else? Of, uh, makes me think of, you know, where I need to stretch my own, my own, uh, my own self. Like I mean, there are things that you know I like humor. It's like for me, I, I, if I'm having a bad week, anything watching anything with Will Ferrell will snap me out of it. I don't know why. I just I I huh? I, 
I love him, but I'm just trying to think about, you know, where could I stretch myself so I could have a bigger ripple effect? Um, and mm-hmm. I think maybe it is in the world of props. Maybe I need to carry some cool stuff like you do. And, uh, so I can, I can, I can help people have that momentary joy mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and relive that with other people. Another thing that I do is I've connected a, um, a DVD burner to my DVR. So my DVR records shows. And if I'm watching a show, and it doesn't necessarily have to be a comedy, but a show where there's a moment of something that I find so funny or so delightful, I'm able to copy it onto a DVD and then later um, copy it onto the computer. So I collect video clips that um, delight me. And um, so I have those that when I'm doing presentations or or talking with people or even sometimes in the the therapy hour, I can show a short clip. So that's another way that that I um, am able to keep the humor rolling, so to speak. Um, uh, And with that in mind, too, a lot of people say they can't tell jokes. Well, if they want to tell a joke, if someone out there wants to tell a joke, there are a couple of things to do. And the biggest thing for me is that when you find a joke that you like and you would really like to tell it, write it down. You must write it down because we know that most things that are told to us disappear within 48 hours. So 48 hours after that joke is told to you, you're not going to remember it well enough to tell it. So the first thing is you write it down. And then stretching yourself, you begin to practice it. You practice it with people who you see as are safe. Practice it with your partner. Practice it with your kids, with your colleagues, with anybody out there. Practice it with a stranger. So, or practice it looking in a mirror so -hmm. that you talk and refine the joke. I mean, I've become a pretty good joke teller now, but I've had to practice. And most people think that this is kind of natural and ingrained, and for some it may be. But I think for most of us, if you hear something funny, if you see something funny, write it down so that you have it um, kind of in your, your hard drive, so you have it stored, so right. you can now load it later on by rereading it, relooking at it, et cetera. Now, do you have a favorite joke? Oh, I do, but it, it's um, a little bit long. To t- Actually, let me tell you my favorite, favorite joke, and I can't tell you um, the joke the joke itself, but I can tell you about it because it takes about, it takes a minimum of six hours to tell it. Oh my Lord. I'm not exaggerating. This is my favorite all time joke. And it's the only one that I've ever heard of. It's unique. And that is, it's a joke where you tell the first part of the joke and you tell it and there's no punchline. There's no getting it. There's no incongruity. There are none of the characteristics in the first part that make a joke funny. So it ends up being a a story that goes nowhere. And when I tell it, and I'll tell it to an audience of 100, 200 people, there's dead silence afterwards because it it just goes nowhere. Right. Then, and I say six hours because the longer I can wait between the initial telling and telling the second part, the funnier it is. But if I'm at a workshop, for example, I'll tell the joke early in the workshop a six hour workshop and I'll tell it as an example of when something's not humorous. So I'll tell it and then I'll say, you know, nobody's laughing. Well, what's going on? Well, here's why it's not humorous. Mm -hmm. Then hours and hours later, I tell the second part of the joke where the punchline lies and then people love it. 
And so that's my favorite joke. But again, it would be quite a while to tell you the two parts and, and, and all that. That's now, my now, I'm, now I'm like in suspense. I want to sit through a six-hour workshop with you just so I can hear the joke. Well, I'll tell you what. Um, when we get to AATH, uh, of course, now that you know that there's two, there are two parts, you'll be ready for it, and that makes it far less funny. Yeah, but I, have, um, I, have, a, I have a 40s form of Alzheimer's. I'll forget by then. So you can just hey. <laughs> you can just you right. can build it up. Next time I'm we're together, I'll tell you the first part, and then I'll wait and tell you the, the next part after you've forgotten basically right. that I'll go to the first part. Um, I, the anticipation is going to kill me. That's awesome. I hope it lasts. <laughs> So it's it's a creative joke, and some people don't find it funny. But for me, the the uniqueness of it, the creativity of it, the getting uh, people getting kind of um, uh, surprised and tricked in the joke, all of which makes it really funny to me. Right. Well, I, I think you bring up something really interesting. There are a lot of things that I think are hilarious, and I know other people don't think are funny, but I think they're funny, and I'll share it anyway, because I get I get enjoyment from it. <laughs> And it's really just all about me. So, <laughs> well, yeah, because each of us, while there are universal traits of humor, we know that there are certain qualities of a story or of a presentation that make it funny. The way each one of us interprets those qualities it makes our our senses of humor unique. So, your sense of humor is unique to Chip, as mine is to me. Like I, I said, I'm I'm a much more cerebral humor person. I don't laugh at slapstick. Um, and I, I don't appreciate a, a lot of humor out there, which surprises a lot of people. I am trying to stretch, you know, we're talking about stretching. Um, I am trying to stretch my own humor style. And there's a lot of British comedy that happens in my home because my wife is British and loves British comedy and is laughing all the time. So I'm getting more and more exposed to British comedy. I don't find it funny, but I'm getting... <laughs> Stretching myself. But if you want to spend time with your wife, then you have to watch it. <laughs> right, that's the condition. Of course, if I don't want to spend time with my wife, there's a good excuse not to. It's so interesting that you bring up that on the humor style and how the the uh, subjective nature of humor in that there is the same way with my wife and I is that we find things so differently funny that, you know, she'll be watching something and just, you know, she'll be like, Oh, that's hilarious. And she's don't she, that's funny. And I'll be like, yeah, it's, it's funny. She goes, well, you're not laughing. I'm like, well, I'm, I'm laughing in here. <laughs> it's funny. It's just, it's not the thing that makes me laugh out loud. I mean, but there are other things that, you know, like really smart humor will just, like I, I'm not as cerebral as you, but just really smart humor, punny, uh, punny humor will are those things that make me laugh out loud. But um, it's kind of interesting that you brought, you know, you bring that up in your own house. Right. And you bring up a really important point too, Chip, that I think, uh, you know, anybody listening might be interested in. And that is there are people who laugh out loud and everybody knows that they're experiencing the humor. But there are also people like you were just mentioning that hear the humor, find it funny, and are laughing on the inside. And what they may be experiencing is what I label um, M-I-R-T-H, which is the emotional experience of humor, that people experience mirth, which gives them an emotional uplift. And that is um, that's a therapeutic value of humor. So when people hear or see something funny, they don't have to laugh to have a benefit from the humor. They can feel uplifted 
Or again, from that cognitive perspective, they can get the humor. They can be thinking about it like I do more cerebrally. And that has a benefit because in the thinking about it, you're getting it and that's shifting your thinking. So people out there should know that uh, you don't have to laugh. Laugh also has its health benefits. We can, you know, I'm sure people have talked about that, uh, other people you've interviewed. But not only is the laughter helpful, but the mirth, the emotional uplift, and what I often label wit, the cognitive experience of humor, are also beneficial. Very cool. And th there you have it from the master of mirth himself. Dr. Steve Soltanoff. Hey, after today, if people want to find you, where, they, where can they find you, uh, Steve? Well, my website is humormatters.com. It's the American spelling of humor, H-U-M-O-R, the word matters, M-A-T-T-E-R-S.com. So probably best way to reach me is through the website. Very cool. And I would recommend that anybody that is looking for somebody that's seriously funny and has, you know, great content to have Steve in to talk to their, you know, what are the normal people you talk to? You know, I know that you teach, you know, at the university, but you know, you also talk to other, you speak to other groups. What other groups are, do you speak to on humor? Well, these days, Chip, I'm mostly retired, but I've done a lot of continuing education. So if I'm um, uh, th therapists, uh, psychologists, marriage counselors, uh, psychiatrists, social workers. I've done continuing education programs, and actually I do have uh, several humor programs online with a company. Um, I'll get that website since I'm talking about that. It's aatbs.com. It's the Association for Advanced Training in Behavioral Sciences, aatbs.com. And there I have two programs that are audio and PowerPoint running together that um, train people on how to use humor therapeutically. Now those target psychotherapists primarily, so they're not for the, the lay public necessarily. Uh, so that's um, kind of that part. I, I, I do con you know, conference keynote addresses and things like that, but not as much more. I'm, as I said, I'm pretty much retired and that I do teach. I teach at Pepperdine University. Uh, there's a local campus in my hometown of Irvine, so I've been teaching there for many years as well. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate you spending some time with me today. Um, you've given me a lot to think about, and I know that those people that are listening, um, they're going to get a lot from the things that you shared today as well, so thanks so much. Sure, I'm glad to do it, and I hope um, people uh, listen to this and, and open themselves up to using more humor in their lives. Me too. And for those of you listening, this is Laughbox, the podcast for the Association for Applied and Therapeutic Humor. Um, I encourage you to check us out at aath.org and consider coming to our conference where you can meet cool people like Steve. So thanks again, my friend. I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Thanks, Chip. This is Laughbox, the podcast for laughter and humor professionals. Laughbox is made possible by a grant from the National Speakers Foundation and is brought to you by AATH, the Association for Applied and Therapeutic Humor. Find out more at AATH.org. Be sure to review Laughbox on iTunes. For show notes and more information about today's conversation, visit laughbox.aath.org. 